If you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 5, pretty please. I want to encourage you to uh, have your Bible open or turned on and take a few notes with us this morning. And while you turn to Esther chapter 5, I want to do a quick recap in case you're new with us, you're just now dropping into this study, uh, or just the past couple, it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Esther, uh, let me bring you up to speed so that we're all on the same page. Chapter 1, we meet the king of Persia. His name is Ahasuerus, or your Bible might call him by his Greek name, which is Xerxes. You sound much more pretentious, though, if you say Ahasuerus. King Ahasuerus is the king of Persia. And in chapter 1 of Esther, he gives an order to his queen, whose name is Vashti, and she refused to obey, and therefore she was removed from the throne. A, a, a search was announced for a new queen, and in chapter 2... All the young girls from the capital city and around were gathered together for this contest. One of those girls is named Esther. She's a young Jewish girl. She's never been married. Uh, and she enters the palace, enters the contest, so to speak, and she finds favor with the king, and Esther is crowned the new queen of Persia. Her adoptive father is named Mordecai. Mordecai tells Esther, keep your Jewish identity a secret, and she does just that. When we get to chapter 3, we meet the bad guy in the story. His name is Haman the Agagite. Let me say that again. His name is Haman the Agagite. Thank you. Very convincing. <laughs> He's the bad guy. He's, a, he's promoted by the king to the number two position in the land Everyone bows to Haman except for Mordecai, Esther's father. It enrages, Morde it enrages Haman, and he goes to the king with a plan. His plan is to eradicate all the Jewish people on one specific day on the calendar. And he gets the king to agree to this genocide. Chapter 4. Haman's plans are known to Mordecai and the Jews around the kingdom, and everyone is in a panic. But Esther does not yet know the plan, so Mordecai sends her word, and he asks her to go to the king, to use her position to plead for her people. But Esther at first refused. She was afraid for herself, and out of a sense of self-preservation, refuses to go to the king. She doesn't want to die. But Mordecai persuades her. He reminds her of... For God reminds her of his power and his delivering ways. And at the end of chapter 4, Esther agrees to go to the king. When we get to chapter 5, where we are today, we're going to see Esther go to the king in this pressure-packed moment and begin to act on behalf of her people. There's a big difference between Esther in chapter 4 and Esther in chapter 5. In chapter 4, we meet a fearful Esther. In chapter 5, we meet a determined Esther. And what's the difference between the two different Esthers? The difference is that in chapter 4, in the midst of her fear, Esther is reminded of the God who holds her and the God who holds their, her people. Mordecai reminds her, if you think you're going to save yourself, you're wrong. You're going to suffer the same fate as the rest of the Jewish people. 
he reminds her that God is a delivering God. If you don't do this, Esther, someone else will. He reminds her that God has put her in this place for this very time. It's not an accident that she was crowned queen. God knew what was coming, and he put her in place to act on behalf of her people, his people. So what's different about Esther in chapter 5 compared to chapter 4? My argument is that she is a woman who believes God. She's choosing to take action based on what she believes about God rather than what she believes the danger to be. She's a woman acting on faith. And shouldn't that be true of all of us? Shouldn't we be people who act based on our trust in God's character and our belief in his word? Well, yes, we should be those kinds of people, but often we are not. We make one of two mistakes most often. One is we don't act at all. We live a Christian life that is all ritual and little engagement. Second, we act, but we don't act based on what we know of God's word and his will. We act based on any other number of factors. What do we think is best for us? What accomplishes justice or fairness in our determination? Uh, what gets us ahead? What promotes us? What puts down our enemies? We may act out of any number of ungodly values and motivations. But Esther teaches us a better way. In Esther chapter 5, we learn that our faith in God leads us to act on plans discerned from God's word rather than from our own desires or wills. And this has huge implications on the way we live as followers of Jesus. Christianity is not an inactive faith. God's people are not merely passive spectators in the world. Like Esther, we are those who believe God and act in his name for his glory. So my purpose in preaching this passage today is to call you to action. It is time for sleepy Christians to wake up, for fearful Christians to be bold, for lethargic Christians to get off their pews and act in the name of Christ for the glory of Christ. It's time to do something with our faith. So Esther chapter 5 shows us the kind of faith that results in God-glorifying action. There are three characteristics of this faith. I want you to follow along with me as I read Esther chapter 5. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard... She gained favor in his eyes. The king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther, and she approached and touched the tip of the scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be given to you. If it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I have prepared for them. The king said, hurry and get Haman so, Haman, so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. 
That day Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still none of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Faith as a word does not show up in the passage. Faith as an action is all over chapter 5. And it teaches us the kind of faith that takes action. That faith has three characteristics. I want to show them to you in the passage this morning. The first characteristic of a faith that takes action, it is a faith that takes risks. A faith that enters into risky situations. It's hard for us to understand how risky it was for Esther to approach the king without an invitation. We might think it's not a big deal because, after all, she's the queen. But remember, she's only queen because the last queen was done away with for refusing to obey an order. Queens in Persia are expendable. She's a wife on paper only. And here's a little detail we glossed over back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 17 is where Esther is crowned the queen. But just two verses later, verse 19, we're told that a second harem was gathered. So although there is a queen in the palace, there's another room that holds the harem. Esther is little more than an ornament. And whenever the king is done with her, he has a whole room full of other ornaments that he can call on. And in fact, if you remember back in chapter 4, when Esther is explaining the danger of approaching the king to Mordecai, she tells him, it's been 30 days since I've been summoned before the king. 30 days that the king has not seen his queen, but I'm willing to bet from what we know of King Ahasuerus, he did not go 30 days without companionship. Esther is a wife on paper only, and, and the writer of the story increases the tension in verse 1 with the repeated use of the word royal. We're told that she dresses in her royal clothing. The king is on his royal throne in the royal courtroom. She's not going to have a conversation with her husband. She's approaching the ruler of the kingdom without an appointment and with a room full of potential queens not far away. The threat to Esther is real. It is an incredible risk for her to go before the king. Why does she take that risk? She does it because she believes something now that she didn't believe before. She's been reminded of God's promises and God's character. Now, let's do a little thought exercise. If you had to craft an argument for why Esther should not take the risk, why Esther should play it safe, what argument would you use? How would you try to persuade her to just stay back? You might say something like, Esther, you're just acting out of emotion. 
Look, you are going to die, and then what good will you be to God's people? A living Esther is more helpful than a dead Esther. And plus, you're not even the right one for the job. You're really just an impoverished girl playing dress-up. It's better for you not to get involved, better for you to stay out of this one, better for you not to do anything. But here's something that's true of God's people. Those who follow a crucified Savior will find themselves in situations that require risk. Now, risk in and of itself is not our goal. Christians are not foolish people. Uh, we don't pursue danger just for the sake of danger, just for the sake of riskiness. But it's inevitable that your allegiance to Christ will put you in situations that are risky. Now, there's this old cliche that floats around church life quite a bit, and it goes like this. It says, the safest place to be is in the middle of the will of God. Is that true? It's true-ish. I mean, yeah, Esther ultimately is safe because she remains in God's will. But although she's in God's will, she's never out of danger. Look, from our limited perspective, her identity with the Jewish people actually puts her in danger. And so sometimes the most dangerous place to be is in the middle of the will of God. So what if we were to try to convince Esther not to approach the king? Well, that kind of argument would be so foolish. We would be motivated to protect Esther, but in doing so, we would in fact be working against her well-being. So faith in Christ will lead to risks. What kind of risks does a Christian take? Every follower of Christ is told by Jesus that we have to do this one thing for sure. We have to tell others about him. But sharing our faith is a risky proposition. Some people share their faith, tell others about Jesus. Many don't. And why is that? It's because of the risk involved. What if I say something wrong? What if I make them mad? What if they ask about dinosaurs? What if my head explodes? There's so much fear involved in telling other people about Jesus Christ and his love for them. But Christ has told us to do this. We have his word that gives us this explicit direction. We have power, God the Holy Spirit, who is in us for this purpose. There's four possible outcomes when you share your faith with another person. One, they might say yes to Jesus Christ. Praise God. Hallelujah. That's what we strive for. Two, they might say, I'm not so sure. I need to think about this. You've done what you're supposed to do. You've scattered the seed where it's supposed to go. You let God bring the harvest. Three, they might say no. But don't they deserve the right to hear of Jesus Christ in order to say no? Don't they deserve the right to hear of his love for them so that they at least know what they're rejecting? Fourth option, they might attack you. Very real possibility in many places on planet Earth. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. I would say it's worth the risk. Do you know how you lose in sharing your faith? The only way you lose is by not sharing your faith. You lose that one every time. Following Christ is going to put us in risky situations. Evangelism is a risk. Missions work is a risk. In some countries, simply gathering for church is a tremendous risk. Forgiving those who hurt you is a risk. Praying for your enemies is a risk. 
But aren't these things worth the risk? These things that Christ has explicitly called us to do, the ways in which he's told us to live. Faith doesn't make us safe. Faith makes us dangerous. And it leads us to places of great risk for the kingdom of God. A faith that takes action not only will go into risky situations, but second, that sort of faith is a faith that makes plans. It's a faith that makes plans. So Esther approaches the king, and once again, we read this phrase. It's come up over and over in the book so far. She gained favor in his eyes. Everywhere Esther goes, she finds favor with people. I wonder who's responsible for that. It's God for sure. So Esther approaches the king, and he welcomes her to the throne, and she invites the king and Haman to a banquet, and they both come right away. And at the banquet, Esther does something that's a little odd. Look at verse 6. She says, or the, the passage says that while drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. So first of all, uh, it's safe to assume that the king is exaggerating when he says he will give Esther half the kingdom. We can't be entirely sure because this guy is a few fries short of a happy meal. So there's something off about the king, but by and large, it just seems like exaggeration on his part. And so this is the point at which we would expect Esther to inform the king of what is happening to her people. But she doesn't do that. Look at verse 7. What does she say? This is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request... May the king and Haman come to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. So why does Esther invite the king and Haman to a second banquet? Why not just come right out with the information? I think most of us feel like that perhaps in this moment Esther is too scared to tell the king what's going on. But a closer look at the story reveals something totally different. Esther doesn't simply ask the king to come to another banquet. She asks him to come if he will grant her request. It's a super clever move on Esther's part. She ties together the king's attendance at a second banquet with an advanced commitment to grant her request. Just by showing up, the king will have already implicitly committed himself to grant whatever request Esther makes of him. And also, she sets it up so that uh, Haman will be there also. After all, he's the mastermind behind the planned slaughter, and she'll need him there for the confrontation. By arranging a second banquet in the way that she does, she both locks in the king's permission for whatever she asks, and she makes it virtually binding by having Haman present for it. Queen Esther is amazing. Now, Esther shows us the brilliant balance between bold faith and thoughtful planning. Esther could have just said, uh, I'll not go to the king, but I'll only pray that God would remove the threat. Or she could have said, we don't have time to pray. I'm going to rush in now, and, 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 and I have a foolproof plan that I just know will work, and I'm going to do that. But instead, she acted with a balance between bold belief and thoughtful planning. That's the way you and I should live as well. So, for example, the person who's in need of a job should pray for a job. And also, budget wisely, search widely, use their network of friends, and apply and interview to the right places. 
The man who's battling habitual sexual sin should pray for the Lord to remove those desires, but he should also act. He should seek support and training and encouragement of other Christian brothers. We have such a group here at the church. Contact me, and I will tell you about this amazing, amazing group of men. The young person who senses God's call on their life to be a missionary should consider carefully how best to prepare, what they should study in school, what platform will best serve their call, where they will serve, what language they must learn, what's been done in that place by others. The family that's considering fostering or adopting must step out in faith for sure, but they have to do so carefully, having planned in advance. Considerable research is needed ahead of time, not just to learn about the need and the process, but more so about that particular family's readiness for what lies ahead. So faith that acts doesn't just act blindly. It's a faith that acts based on plans, counting the cost, measuring the steps, working in line with the will of God. There's a great book you should read called Project Pearl. It's the story of Christians in China, missionaries and indigenous Christians who crafted a plan to smuggle one million Bibles into China in one night. It was soaked in prayer. It's one, another name for this, there's another book uh, written about the same event called The Night of a Million Miracles. Without a doubt, this was a faith event that under the eyes of communist China, Christians would smuggle in one million Bibles in one night. And that plan required all kinds of advanced planning. In order for it to happen, they couldn't just pray and wait for it to materialize. There was prayer and there was action. They had to plan how to get the Bibles printed, how to get them shipped, how to get them in the country, how to distribute them, even how to communicate all the details from outside the country to inside the country. Phone calls were monitored, mail was confiscated. Any attempt to smuggle messages at border crossings would be found out since guards searched everyone. And so the Christians prayed and they crafted a plan. Do you know how they communicated from outside the country to inside and back? Well, they converted their messages to Braille and blind Chinese believers transported the communication back and forth across the borders without ever being questioned by guards. Brilliant. Don't be afraid to act on plans that are informed by your faith in God. Faith is not the opposite of acting and planning. Rather, faith guides our planning and acting. Faith that acts for the glory of God goes into risky situations. It is a faith that is planned, informed by God's word. Third and finally, it is a faith empowered by humility. So after Esther's invitation to banquet number two, there's a big change in the scene in the story. We follow Haman out of the palace, back to his house, on his way home, he passed Mordecai, but Mordecai still refused to show him honor, and Haman was furious. And when he got home, he called together his family and friends, and isn't it just sick the way he talks about himself? Me, I, just, he puffs himself up. Everyone get together, let me tell you how awesome I am. And he does just that. And so he's explaining how powerful he is, how wealthy he is, how much influence he is. Life sounds pretty good, but there's one problem. Mordecai won't bow. Haman has everything this world says is valuable, 
But none of it satisfies because Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai won't bow. Haman is an arrogant monster. And his family enables his arrogance. Do you see the advice that his wife gave him in verse 15? Or excuse me, verse 14? She said, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. Haman has this regular routine of inflicting disaster and then enjoying himself. You remember in chapter 2, he crafts the plan to eradicate Jewish people from the kingdom. And then he and the king enjoy a drink together. Here, he's going to watch Mordecai executed and then go and have a sweet meal and enjoy his day. It's a really disgusting scene. The arrogance is a trait of monstrous people. It's not a trait of people of faith. Faith automatically puts us in a place of humility. And as people of faith, believing that there is a God, that he is one, that he is omni-everything, he's the creator and we are his creation, that sort of faith leads us to live humble lives before God. It's impossible to be a prideful, arrogant person who believes in the Lord. For sure, Christians struggle with pride all the time. But we struggle. We don't give in. We don't cultivate. We don't encourage it. We fight against it. We're not perfect in our humility, but we strive for it by the grace and the mercy of God. In contrast to Haman, I want you to hear how the Apostle Paul spoke about himself in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 10. He said, although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was gained to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I've suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that's through faith in Christ, righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Haman wanted to be conformed to the likeness of the king, but Jesus' people want to be conformed to his death. Haman's faith is in himself, therefore he will certainly fail. But our faith is in the Lord, and God never fails. Many Christians often misunderstand where the power of faith comes from. And the power of faith is always based on the object of your faith. We, we like to talk about faith as if like we have some reservoir for it and we need to fill our faith tank to a certain level in order for it to kick in and be active. The more our reservoir is filled, then the stronger our faith is. That's not the way faith works. Faith depends on the object of your faith. So if the object of your faith is weak and make-believe and creative and finite, you will get exactly what that object of your faith can give you. But if the object of your faith is omni-everything, loving, compassionate, the self-revelatory God, the one who loves you and knows you, if your faith is in him, then even a little bit of faith, faith the size of a mustard seed, will throw a mountain into the ocean. That's what Jesus said. 
Why? Because that faith is powerful because of the object of our faith. Haman's faith is in himself. He will get what he can deliver, which is death. Esther's faith is in the God of promises, the God who's a deliverer. And so it is for us. That faith puts us in a place of humility, and that humility recognizes where true power lies in the God of our salvation. A person of faith who's humble before the Lord will find their God is mighty to save beyond what they could ever imagine. It is better to trust in the invisible God than in visible fools. A humble faith is a powerful faith. So what have we learned this morning from Esther chapter 5? We've learned that faith leads us to risk, it informs our plans, and it empowers humility. That sort of faith is a faith that takes action. So how well are you doing in stepping out in faith? How well are you doing in taking action for the sake of the glory of Christ? Do you obey God's word even when it leads you to risky situations? Does your trust in the Lord inform your plans? Or do you plan according to your panic or your fear or your ego? Is Christ-like humility leading you to trust the Lord or is pride leading you away from God? What's the action God has impressed on your heart or made clear to you through your circumstances? Esther 5 helps us understand these characteristics of faith, but we need clarity on what we should do. I know what action faith looks like, but now where do I apply that? What do I do with this sort of risk, not seeking, but this risk-enduring faith, this humble faith, this power? What do I do with that? Well, there's any number of ways the Lord might inform your steps in the week ahead, but let me give you a few options. I want to give you three options for actions you might take this week with the kind of faith we see Esther employ here in chapter 5. What are those three actions you can take this week? Actions that might be risky, actions that require some planning, actions that will be empowered by your humility. Well, the first one is this. I want you to bless a hurting person in the week ahead. Do you have a coworker or a neighbor or a family member or a friend who's going through a challenging situation? Do something to bless them. Yes, pray for them. There's no greater thing you can do for a friend in need than to pray for them. But then act on that prayer. You are an, uh, you're an answer to that prayer. I think we forget how powerful it is that when we approach hurting people, we come alongside them with a kind card or a lasagna. Right? Who in your life is hurting and how can you bless them? Second thing I want you to consider this week is to have a gospel conversation. Create an opportunity to turn a conversation towards Jesus. It might be an impromptu encounter. It might be someone you see regularly. Either way, you'll need to pray and plan for that encounter. It will be worth the risk. Your concern is not with the outcome. Your concern is with your obedience. So with compassion and grace, sly as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Have a gospel conversation with someone in the week ahead. Third, make a commitment to our missions fund. I already gave you the commercial. Pray about it. What will need to change in your spending in order for you to be a regular giver to missions? How can you give in such a way that it's a joy and not a burden? 
So bless someone. Point someone to Jesus. Help fund the global spread of the gospel. Those are the kinds of things a risk-taking, plan-making, humble faith can do. If you're not a Christian, I want to talk to you just for a brief moment. We've talked about faith this morning and the action that accompanies faith. There's one action we have not spoken so explicitly of just yet. And that's this. Faith has the ability to turn dead people into living people. Did you know that you're dead? You're dead in your sin. That's true for every person apart from Jesus Christ. We're not dying in sin. We're not drowning in sin. The Bible says we are dead in sin. And there's nothing you can do, I can do, that would give ourselves life again. We've sinned against God. That sin has separated us from him. The penalty for our sin is death. It is deserved. It is just. It is right. God is the one who sits on the throne. But our God is a God of compassion and mercy and love. And so because he loves you, he sent his son to die in your place for your sin. Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, is the only one who could do this work. He's the only one who could die for our sin. No one else can do it. I can't die for your sin. I've got sin of my own. And so we need a deliverer. We need someone to come and rescue us. And only the God-man, Jesus Christ, can do that. So the... Eternal creator, God, the son, takes on flesh, dwelt among us, died on the cross in your place for your sin. The cross wasn't an accident that we've crafted a story to make sense of after the fact. This was God's plan all along. When he said, let there be light, he knew what it would cost him for you to exist and to live in that light and for you to be redeemed. So he's always said yes to you, every step of the way. Jesus died in your place. Three days later, he rose from the dead and because he loves you, he sends this promise to you that if you will say yes to him, if you will faith in him, he will forgive you for your sin. He will give you new life, eternal life, everlasting life. But there's got to be this turn. Our faith is evidenced by saying, all that I used to have is dead to me. All of my Haman-like accomplishments, all of my Paul-like religiosity, dead, done with it. I'm turning to Jesus Christ. I'm going to bank everything on him. I'm going to rely entirely on him to forgive me and save me. And he will, and he does. It's risky. Your life's going to change. You might need to count the cost. But you need to humble yourself before God. Make him the Lord of your life. And you can know everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So, Father, thank you for Esther's example to us. She's such a faithful teacher. And this morning, she's shown us what it is for us as your children to act in faith. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we are inactive with this faith in you. We are so capable of being lethargic. We are so capable of being motivated to action by ungodly values. So, Lord, correct us this morning by your word and by your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Correct your children. Thank you for your kindness that leads us to repentance. And God, let us be a people of action in the name of Jesus Christ and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Let us take action in ways that are faithful to your word and to your call in our lives. And God, I pray for my friends in here that don't know you as their Savior. Let this be the day that 
that you've ripped their hearts, that they say yes to you, that they understand you've always said yes to them. Father, bring new life today as they trust in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together as we